What's going on? Pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Love it, dude. Uh, so back in 2013, you were working as a project manager, but you were building a relationship with Daisy creator Dean Hall. And I heard it was a special email that you sent. Tell us about that. I'll tell you right now, I'm kind of impressed with the level of research. Usually when I get into podcasts, I have to tell these stories. You've done your research ahead of time, so I get to, to cut ahead. This is nice. Um, so yeah, at the time, uh, this would be the early to say mid 2013. Um, I had the fortuitous position of having been one of the three creators, or you could say grandfathers of the modern battle royale genre with, uh, an IP that I later sold to Bohemia known as survivor games. And at the time in 2013, we had we had kicked the event off in, well, back in 2012, calling it Daisy Hunger Games. And we did a couple of those, met up with Dean Hall in uh, Seattle, obviously, uh, PAX Prime. And I had uh, myself, uh, uh, Louis Doran, uh, otherwise known as the official Lou, um, Jordan, uh, Jordan Tayer, otherwise known as Soma, who later on went to work for Twitch. I think now he currently works for Stream Elements. I always get some of those company names mixed up. He's going to kill me for that. Um, yeah, so we, we had all made this this event called Survivor Games, and, and we met up with Dean Hall at a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse outside of the convention center in downtown Seattle. He gave us the some of the best advice anyone's ever given me in my career, which is to stop using the name Hunger Games because you can't monetize that mm. and uh, switch to something else. And I'm pretty confident he came up with the name Survivor Games. Uh, we had run that event throughout 2013, and it was, I mean, honestly, it was, it was, it was like an avalanche of interest. It still, to this day, blew me away. I mean, 2012 and 2013 Twitch, we're talking, you know, someone's pulling 400 viewers. It's like, oh my God, that's huge, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of, a lot of the people that, that you know as heavy hitters today, probably weren't on Twitch at the point. And those that were like Lyric, for example, or Summit, um, there was much smaller, much smaller. So mm -hmm. it was a much thinner ecosystem. And and we started running these events, these Hunger Games, Survivor Games events throughout 2012 and 2013. And it was the chart on viewership just kept going up and up. And we weren't spending any money on marketing. This is purely word of mouth through content creators on Twitch coming together, kind of making this, this, I don't know, this giant ball of viewer bases that all kind of have similar interests, but slightly different. You know, you've got your lyrics, you've got your puddings, you've got Baby Night, you got Gold Glove, just all these people coming together over this one, this, this, this love of the, the purely emergent gameplay that DayZ Mod offered and putting them into this, uh, we used, I had, I had watched the first Hunger Games film and watched the Battle Royale film. And we just, we saw that and we're like, this is perfect for Daisy. Uh, credit to Jordan Tayer, Soma. It was 98% his idea. I just had to execute it. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're getting these, these, these huge spikes in viewership. Daisy itself ends up number one on Twitch every time we run this event. Knocking out, in some cases, StarCraft II events. Um, some Counter-Strike events, we were pulling huge numbers that even was even was catching Twitch off guard. We started talking to uh, Ben Fishsticks, uh, who now runs Juked, 
Um, he was kind of our initial point of contact at Twitch. They were very impressed. Him and um, Marcus, DJ Wheat, uh, they were all yeah. blown away by the numbers we were pulling because we we're literally just this little hobby project we're doing after work, and it's just skyrocketing on Twitch straight to the number one spot. We were getting uh, front page by them early on, which was a huge amount of support they gave us. And uh, yeah, so we, in general, um, had a lot of attention from Dean, who's seen his little mod just blow up on Twitch by these events that were a complete re repurposing of the tooling that they had used to make Daisy Mod. We turned, you know, switched things around a little bit and we had a whole new experience and people loved it. And uh, my my day job uh, was more of a technical project manager over at what now would be called ID at Xbox. At the time, I think it was Managed Indie Games was the program title. And my office was in Studio C. And in that same building was Phil Spencer, was uh, Chris Charla. I mean, it was Sheree Lutz. It was a whole who's who of getting things done on the Xbox side of this thing. Uh, yeah. At the time, Chris Charla, his role was the portfolio manager for Microsoft Games. Well, I think it was Microsoft Studios at the time. Um, so I took this opportunity since I knew both people on both sides of the fence and I knew that Bohemia and had, had, had these mutterings of maybe uh, Daisy on Xbox. And I was intricately, you know, plugged in with at the time, the unreleased Xbox one. So I would send this, these emails to Dean saying, all right, Dean, so here's the deal. Microsoft might seem like a behemoth of a machine to those on the outside, but on the inside, it's literally just normal people. They got kids, they got, you know, hobbies. So it, if, if I can establish a, a human connection, then maybe the monolith that is Microsoft will become less intimidating or cumbersome or untrustworthy. Um, so yeah, I would, I would send Dean these emails of like, these are the kind of things you can ask Microsoft for that they currently offer other studios that are publishing with them. And then I would go down and talk to Chris Charlin in his office and say, all right, I know you guys have been having trouble connecting with Bohemia. Here's what I know they're looking for <clears throat> and, and the right things to say to them. And this kind of went back and forth for a couple months as we were working on launching the Xbox One. Sure. And, and I tossed one of my last emails to Dean, I think it was right before he went off to climb Mount Everest, um, was, you know, I'm doing all this. You should just hire me. And I just kind of threw it out there like, yeah, roll the dice. Maybe he'll think it's a joke. You know? <laughs> and uh, his response to me right before he goes and climbs a friggin' mountain is, <laughs> oh, oh, in a heartbeat. So there's this back and forth as I'm trying to uh, catch him before he leaves. And we agree on, you know, he asked me, can you come to L.A. for E3 this year? Which will be summer 2013. So I went and I talked to my managers uh, over in Redmond and I said, listen, I've got this opportunity. Uh, and they were surprisingly supportive. Uh, I got advice from the senior producers I was working with that pretty much told me, and it's kind of a truism I've, I've grown to, to know about the industry is if you've been somewhere long enough in the same role, people get to know you for that role. And it's hard for them to think of you in a different role. And often in the industry, in order to move up, you need to move out. You might come back to the studio later on, but you need to change mm. studios to kind of reinvent yourself. It was a solid bit of advice. Um, my GM at the time told me as long as 
I found people to cover the titles that I was the point of contact for. Um, I could go. Uh, and even to the point of I had two titles I was the point of contact for that were showing on the show floor at E3. So they said, this just makes sense. Let's send you with the Microsoft contingent. You'll be responsible for your titles down there. As long as you can take care of that, I don't care what you do as far as interviews and stuff like that. So I flew out to Los Angeles, took care of the games I was responsible for on the show floor, getting them set up, ready for the big reveal of the Xbox One, the hands-on stuff. And uh, and in between, I went to a little interview with Mark Spaniel, the CEO, and Dean in this tiny booth in the middle of one of the halls. I don't remember which one. It was the only time I've known Bohemia Interactive to have an actual significant booth footprint. Normally they're kind of off in the edge with the rest of like some of the smaller European studios and they've got a couple machines. In this case, they had a whole chunk of the show floor. They set up all these demo machines. It was really cool to see. And I sat down uh, with them and we talked about my experience in modding their titles and what we'd done with the Survivor games, my experience at Microsoft. And I was told by Marek, uh, yeah, why don't you, why don't you come out for a working interview? And uh, again, credit to Microsoft. When I got back to Redmond and I told them they want me to fly out for a working interview, uh, they didn't have a problem with that. And it's wow. likely because at the time I I had a role that was known as um, internally in Microsoft it was referred to as a V dash. It's a full time vendor. Um, hmm. What Microsoft does to fill a lot of positions is they'll go through contracting agencies and they have an A dash and a V dash contracting agency. A dash is typically referred to as contractors. V dash is referred to as vendors. The difference, and this might be, this might've changed because it's been a long time since I've sure. had these roles, but it used to be that A dash was a 12 month contract or up to a 12 month contract. And you had to have a three month gap at the end of that before you could take another contract. It had all something to do with Microsoft getting sued back in, I think the mm-hmm. early 2000s. And then the V dash, the vendors, there was no limit at all. You, while you might technically work for a company like Siemens or something along those lines, you had a direct manager at Microsoft, an office at Microsoft. That's where you worked every day. Just Microsoft paid the contracting agency, contracting agency right. paid you, and that's how they get around you know benefits. Yeah, employee status and yeah, all yeah, those yeah. things probably. So they 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 gave me the time off as long as I had somebody to cover it. So I took unpaid two week unpaid vacation for a two week long working interview in a little <laughs> village outside of Prague called Mishek. Tiny little village. Couldn't be a population of more than 1500, I think at the most. Wow. Yeah. It was gorgeous up, up in the hills outside of Prague. I just absolute storybook uh, location. And I spent uh, two weeks staying in a, a little um, kind of like a little hostel room above the motion capture facility at BI's offices in Mishek. Working with Dean Hall and Matt Lightfoot, who now I think he's with Gunzilla. Uh, for a while there, he was with um, Chris Roberts' company, the guys behind Star Citizen. Um, yeah, it was pretty much just the three of us. And then later on, we got you know part-time access to some animators that later on became full-time part of the DayZ team. But it was very, I mean... It was the room we were in is probably the quarter of the size of my garage. All of us crammed in there. I remember, I remember very the, the heating or the cooling was not very good, so we had to open the doors, the window to the the forest out there to get some air circulation. We had a bunch of these little 
um, electric fans. I have memories of of us getting bored working on documentation and and Dean Hall taking a bottle of Purell. Man, if he only knew how much that'd be valuable in 2020. <laughs> Took a bottle of Purell and started spraying it into the fan to just cover the back of my head with hand sanitizer. We created something called a super match where we took a whole box of matches and tied them all together and then put them on the end of this long wooden stick and then lit them to scare <laughs> Matt Lightfoot. Unfortunately, the flame from that was so big that I saw it flash against the wall in front of me. A lot of hijinks as we kind of initially figured out what we wanted Daisy's early access launch to be. And then after the two weeks, um, I think I did a, a, a 5K run into the woods with Dean Hall. Uh, because at the time I ran a lot and Dean was training for Everest. And at the end of the run, uh, we sat down, we talked about the results of the working interview. Uh, and then I went down and talked to Mark Spaniel uh, about my salary expectations, benefits, that kind of usual sort. And I had to sit on my hands for another three months until uh, Slavic, uh, Slavomir Pavelcek, I believe his surname is, the CFO of Bohemia, came back from his vacation and signed off on my salary requirements because there was an agreement that Mark wouldn't spend money unless Slavic said yes. So I had to wait for him. It was a little tense. Uh, the last three months at Microsoft as my managers kept saying, listen, we're here to support you, but we need to know if you're coming or going. Um, yeah. But I eventually you know, got the offer, took the offer. And I distinctly remember the, I worked very late my last night in Redmond. Uh, I was the last one out of the building, I'm pretty sure. It was pushing midnight. And we had in the lobby of Studio C, we had this big kind of hanging um, LED countdown. It was probably three stories high. And it had a countdown until the commercial launch of the Xbox One. And I remember when I left the building, it was 48 hours left on the clock. I got on my flight at 5 in the morning, flew directly to Prague. Well, not directly to Prague. It's... Seattle to London, London to Prague. And uh, I was at work the next morning. It was an absolute whirlwind. I don't, I, <laughs> I can only, I can only assume I was able to pull this off because I was still in my early thirties and my body was like, no, you can totally operate on little to no sleep and jet lag and all these kind of things that would kick my ass now. But yeah, that, that was, that was the impetus. I, Took that offer and immediately we started working on the product and building the team. Wow. That is it. That's so incredible, man. That's so incredible. When you launched the game on Steam, I heard that was wild as well. When you even accidentally deleted the game's live database. So Daisy hit early access with effectively three months of development of a of anything resembling a, a normal team. Because prior to that, it was literally part-time offerings from some folks that were attached to Arma, and then two or three core people on it. And uh, as after I moved out, we started building the team up, hiring people like uh, Peter Nespesny, who ended up becoming our lead designer. Um, you know, uh, Andre, oh, I'm forgetting Andre's surname. Martin. There was a, there was a whole group of initial designers we hired. Then we acquired. Um, a lot of our core engineers, Fido and, and, um, raced and Yana, the whole, the whole core engine team came on board around that time. And we really started steamrolling towards this idea of what the, the minimum viable product was for steam. 
And uh, the launch of that was quite hectic. I think I've still got somewhere around here. I, I'm a bit of a data hoarder. So if it's anything that's ever crossed my hard drive, ever been printed out, I'm storing it. I've got a box yeah. somewhere in here of stuff about my career. And in there is just <laughs> stacks of these invoices I had to submit uh, to get paid back on for team dinners for working super late in the night, ordering from TGI Fridays. Yes, TGI Fridays in Prague. Ordered from TGI Fridays. <laughs> A um, lot of that, a lot of late night sessions, working on the game, trying to get it ready to go. I remember launching. Uh, there was a lot of drama around that. Dean and I had worked pretty late into the night along with um, uh, a gal I was dating at the time, good friend of mine now, content creator on Twitch, Kiwo. Uh, she, was, she was also there helping us work on the trailer, um, as well as Matt Lightfoot. Worked late into the night onto this, on this thing. It was definitely a passion project. Unfortunately, after we had launched, there's a couple things here. One, no one had told us that we can't just click the button that says launch. <laughs> Apparently, we need to talk to Valve. But there wasn't any software constraints on that. So we launched mm. without giving Valve heads up that we were launching. And at the time, they didn't look over the media you upload to the storefront. So this trailer we worked on, it was our launch trailer. We hit go on it. Yeah. Dean was very excited. 15 minutes after launch, the trailer was removed. Dean was very angry about this. It yeah. turns out, as I called Nathaniel Blue, our contact at Valve, uh, they were a little uncomfortable with the fact that our trailer very clearly shows suicide as part of our gameplay loop. Which it is. Mm. If you've ever played DayZ, it's been a, a while, but I'm pretty confident it was F11 was a shortcut to, you know, shoot yourself, stab yourself in the neck, any kind of like, I hate this spawn, I'm going to respawn. Yeah. We gave the players that option. Valve did not like that <laughs> at all, at all. So they pulled the trailer. I had to deal with, at the time... Uh, Dean Hall having a bit of a diva moment where he's like, I'm Dean Hall for Christ's sake. You know, they can't just do this to me. Uh, we ended up, I've still got the original trailer on one of these hard drives here. We ended up having to re-record the trailer and effectively, actually we didn't re-record the trailer. We re-edited it. And instead of the, the, the particle effect coming out of the head and the player slumping over, we just cut to black after mm. the gunshot goes off. They were happy with that. Now, fast forward a couple months after launch, we're making big waves. You know, um, at the time, I believe we were one of the fastest across a million units and uh, time-wise, it was within our first two weeks. I think later on, we were oh. usurped by a couple hundred thousand units a little bit faster by PUBG uh, years later. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was, it was a, an insane year. 2014, we spent the entire year in the number one spot on Steam through every sale. We launched in the middle of the winter sale and we still were number one without any takeovers, without any marketing. Daisy just took off a hundred percent because of content creators and the, and, and the word of yeah. mouth, because we literally had no marketing budget. I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic here. There was no marketing budget. And wow. so we're, it's a couple months later. We're, we're obviously number one on Twitch. People are playing it. They're loving it. There's problems. Sure. But it's taken off. And we had all been pulling very, very late nights and anybody that works with relational databases is going to put their face in their, in their hands when they hear what I did. But 
we were still very much in this early development mindset and I still was running queries on the database, what I thought was the development database loca lo uh, located internally in the studio. I apparently was connected at the time to the live database. I was very tired. I didn't notice this. I think I had had it pulled up because we were, I was running a query on finding out exactly who our millionth uh, user was, uh. who had the millionth entry in the database. <laughs> and uh, I just completely forgot that I was on the live database. I, for some reason, and keep in mind, this is almost a decade ago, I, I dropped all the tables on the live database. And dropping a table effectively means delete all. I deleted everything while the game was live. <laughs> and while I believe who was it was it I think it was either Polygon or Eurogamer were in the studio doing a tour with Dean I remember distinctly the setup we were in the room that was kind of the designer office in this new building we had just moved to which is currently where the Daisy development team is based off of off the Vlatava River in Prague and I was on this this row of uh tables facing a wall and dean was right behind me with his desk facing that way and i'm sitting in my chair and i'm looking at the screen and my brain is kind of rebooting realizing what i just did as on my second monitor i've got it might have been summit somebody i knew that was a big heavy hitter on twitch was on this monitor and i saw their character just rubber banding like crazy and he couldn't open his inventory. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I look over. Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so I have this brief moment where it washes over me. It's just absolute fear. And I stop for a second. And I'm like, there's got to be a route out of this. So I open Skype because that's what we used back then. I open Skype and I go into this war room group chat we've got with Multiplay, who was our backend infrastructure provider. Uh, Multiplay later on got acquired by Unity, but I think they still operate as Multiplay. And I message Steve, who is their chief technical officer now, I believe. And I'm like, Steve, I did something very bad and I need you to save me. And he's like, okay, all right, calm down. What's wrong? And I said, I just dropped all tables. On the live database, do we have a backup? And he goes, well, you don't pay for a backup, but fortunately, <laughs> I was running some query optimizations, and I have a backup from 15 minutes ago. And I'm like, okay, how long will it take you to restore this backup? And he's like, I can take down the backend, restore it, and bring it back up in 10 minutes. And I'm like, okay, let's do that. And I just sat there, not moving. <laughs> staring at my desk like I was doing things, clicking on things, you know, just waiting for the little little notification on Skype that Steve was done. And as soon as Steve was done, then I was like, okay, now I tell Dean there's been a problem because it's been solved and he doesn't mm. have to freak out about it. So I turned to him and I was like, Dean, I might have accidentally deleted the database, but it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Steve's got a backup. I am going to disconnect from the live database on my SQL editor, I'm going to remove that entry so I no longer have access. And he looks at me, he goes, learned a hard lesson today, didn't you? I'm like, yes, I did. <laughs> All right, carry on. And uh, that was the last time I made any connections to the live database for Daisy myself. I left it to the engineers from there on. Yeah, 
Yeah, I briefly deleted every character in existence, which at that time I think was there's a million users. I think we we're around oh, man, uh, eighty four million characters. I mean, because characters die often, you know. Sure, sure. But I mean, when you have that many players and <laughs> and everything on and everything going, it's just like that must have been a long ten minutes. It or, was or whatever it was. It just like it was the longest ten minutes of my oh, life. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Hey, I just want to take a little pause from the episode to tell you about an amazing opportunity that we have. Stone's going to share a little more details, but if you're interested in growing your stream, then listen to what he has to say. Did you know there's a proven way to grow your stream? I get that growing your audience can feel impossible. I've been there, but I'm here to tell you that with the right framework, it's not only possible, I try and make it as simple as possible. I spent the last 10 years learning how to hone my craft and I've distilled the most important things that I've learned into a one hour free live training session. I'm gonna be talking about the most important things that you should be focusing on to create amazing content, grow your audience and to monetize. You shouldn't be working hard and not seeing results. I wanna save you from working on the stuff that isn't really moving the needle for you. There's a proven framework that every streamer uses to grow. It might be in different ways, but I'll even show you examples of how it's worked with many new creators. So what's the secret? Stay tuned for the session, find out. Spots are even limited. So make sure to save it now, and I hope to see you there. Just click the link in the episode description to register. Helps by sharing yeah. their stories. Yeah. Yep. And, and being on the game development side, uh, you know, working with a lot of these creators as well, I guess creators around the world are always trying to figure out how do I work with developers, especially with the games that I like, whether it's like the community side of it, the marketing side of it, or even the development side, to your point, giving feedback directly to developers and bringing people up as you did with DayZ. I mean, that's awesome. What advice would you give to creators along that front? Or what was something that you see as being impactful in that? Well, Overall, unfortunately, not every developer in the industry sees the value from content creators. A lot sure. of them nowadays do. Um, I don't. I found. I found personally, most of the larger budget offerings, your AAA studios trying to reach out to content creators. I found it disingenuous that they were more often than not dealing with folks in the marketing department or dealing with folks in communications, brand management, folks that were trained for curating and communicating through very, very controlled elements to a community. I always, and maybe this is just because I myself got into the industry from having more, not necessarily intimate, but closer contact to the developers that inspired me. I talked yeah. about this briefly on social media after I think retweeting something Mike Bithel said. The the conversations that that the developers are having about their products, that developers will have with other developers about their products. It's a, it's a level of insight and understanding that you just don't get through more curated means. Mm. I've always viewed video games as and I'm going to steal a line from Richard Bartle here, uh who's fantastic author and, and uh, uh, the most tenured game designer I'm aware of. He, he likes to refer to video games as art expressed through engineering. And 
I mean, I a hundred percent agree. And having access to the, the artists and their motivations and what truly drives them and what they're aiming for, what their intent is with a given system. It was a, it was a level of understanding that I had, I had always wanted for, mm-hmm. for, for the, the gaming community, for content creators. I felt like if you could connect with those people, if you could understand what they were aiming for, that together we could potentially make something greater. And I, I suppose my advice and this might this might seem this might seem a little a little jaded, so forgive me for this. My advice to content creators looking to to communicate to integrate with with developers in any fashion is first and foremost understand that game development, in my experience, is an it's a it's an effort it's a creative expression it's an effort that takes passion and drive, and it is therefore very often near and dear to the hearts of the people that are doing it. So when you are talking about a product, when you're talking to a developer, please try and keep in mind that they are as passionate about and care for as much their product as you do for your own stream, for your community, for the stuff you're trying to create. So just the biggest advice I can have is have a little compassion and humanity when you're talking to another person, not a company. A person mm-hmm. on the other side of the thing, because while companies might rake in the money from the sales, it is people that are creating this, people that are putting long hours in, driving their own creativity, trying to figure out how to achieve the goals. It's something they care about just as much as you care about your own. So if you can set aside what might be like, oh, you know, that was a shit game, you know, Summit punching his camera or whatever, you, you can set aside those emotions and understand that the same passion you have for that title, they have for it. Find that common ground, speak to them with respect and any admiration you might have for the art in and of itself. I, I think you can better get to know the person behind it and you can make mm-hmm. a far more constructive conversation. I, as a developer, am way more interested in constructive conversations with people that they might disagree with me, but it's very clear that they care about the product. Ultimately, that was a lot of the love hate uh, about DayZ. You know, we, we, it would be, it'd come in waves. The, admiration and condemnation, admiration, condemnation, depending on the state of the build, how long the build's been out. It's a double-edged sword because I recognized at that time that these people wouldn't be angry on Reddit about something that changed if they didn't love the product. Mm -hmm. If we can only take that passion and put it towards a more constructive form of conversation, which I will agree comes from both sides of the fence, then I think we can have a more collaborative effort because ultimately while I and the teams that I work with might be creating these experiences and building these worlds. We're building it, hoping to see content creators play it. Because while you can read the feedback that gets sent in through bug reports or through you know, uh, an article written somewhere, the most important data we can gather from people playing our games is to watch what they do rather than listen to what they say. Because often people will come up with ideas that Ultimately, they might not like when it gets adopted, but what they can't, they can't hide or fib around or obfuscate in any way is how they actually play the game, what they actually hook into, what their actual emotional responses are in their face. I mean, that is the value from watching content creators as a developer. You can literally see like you're in right. some secret user, user research lab. You can literally see where they get frustrated and 
and what really sinks into them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the value in that is immeurable. And I don't know if I answered your question, but that is yeah, 100% absolutely. why I love watching content creators play my games because it tells me in the truest form whether or not I hit or missed on a given intent. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, I think a lot of it in general is like, it's an organic relationship, even like collaborating with other people, even with, you know, a lot of other things. It's like, do you have that foundation? Clearly you had that going into, you know, working with Dean and getting into Daisy, And like, I think that helped bridge, bridges the gap in a lot of ways. And to see that example and to hear the story about that, I think is just phenomenal. Um, I think we got time for like one more quick question sure. here, but, uh, Outside of work, I hear you are massively into Twitch role-playing in terms of GTA. Uh, for those who are listening, maybe don't know, maybe you could just give us a little bit of what you're working on with that, with the server, and like sure. what that experience has been like for you. Well, back in 2017, when I first started transitioning away from Bohemia Interactive and towards NXL Entertainment, Brian Fargo's company, the Wasteland guys, out here in, in Southern California, um, my roommate uh lewis doran who i'd mentioned was part of the team that created the survivor games he was getting really into along with another content creator i knew through daisy jam jar they were getting into gta rp um they were playing on the server called rp first uh and effectively what it is is it's it's a there's a there's a group known as the cfx collective who had written their own lack of a better term harness around grand theft auto 5 it allowed them to uh, effectively release a modding API that was super accessible with documentation. So people were spooling up these little worlds, kind of like in, in, in Daisy now, where you have like all these little mod packs. People were spooling up these worlds with their own little mod packs they'd written in Lua to create this virtual world. <clears throat> and that instantly grabbed me because, I mean, I came from Ultima Online and Star Wars Galaxies, from Legend of the Red Dragon and... Trade Wars uh, 2002, I think it was, Door Games on BBS. is like, I've always been passionate about virtual worlds. It's exactly what got me working on, B- on, on Daisy for BI. And I saw this, this, this very rough little gem of this virtual contemporary world where you could live in, in Los Angeles, effectively. It was, it was so accurate to the feeling of being in LA. And all these systems, they were, writ- they were written around emerging gameplay, players taking the systems and doing something that they wanted with it and creating these stories in the same fashion that you saw people playing Daisy in 2012, 2013 and onwards. I recognized it as, as I felt like this is, this is the next thing in that, that evolution of content creators making stories and worlds through things like Twitch and YouTube and Facebook gaming and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I started diving in on this RP first server, which is run by a good friend of mine uh, who at the time went by Raging Ravage, now just goes by Ravage. And yeah, I, I got, it just absolutely hooked me. I was, I was, I had this full-time job. I'd go down two miles from my, my house and I'd be the creative director of this big team working on this big VR project. And then as soon as I got home, I was, I was, what was my, my character? I think was like, I forgot his first name. His last name was May. Well, William May. I was William May, this LSPD rookie cop. And I'd, I'd drive around answering 911 calls, being this community-oriented police officer. And there was just constant new stuff going on everywhere. I'd, I'd run into folks that I hadn't seen in ages. All these names I recognized from DayZ, TVS, BOH, now known as Mike the Bard, uh, Cream, Kenny, good old friend from my back on WeStream, DayZ. 
you know, I'd, I'd run into these folks like, oh, I haven't seen this person in forever. And they'd be making these amazing in-depth stories with such a janky little harness that it was. <laughs> I just, I kept being addicted to it. I, I couldn't stop. And from 2017 to today, I have been habitually addicted outside of my work on continuing to develop, write my own systems, run servers, play in other communities, because I saw this CFX harness, whether it be now with Red Dead Redemption 2 and the Red M uh, modding or uh, 5M, the GTA 5 modding. It was this perfect harness of this, this world building that was done by Rockstar, which is unparalleled world building. Yeah. And I can interpret it in any way I want. I can decide that, oh, you know what? I didn't like, I didn't feel like Rockstar did enough work on Postop, for example, which is one of the shipping companies in GTA. I can write this whole system where people can be a Postop driver and they can drive the post-op trucks and drop off packages everywhere and get paid for it. And, oh, you know what? I can plug that into the traffic patterns of how the illegal jobs of like maybe growing cannabis or, or moving meth. Let's make sure it moves along the same pipelines, the same route so that these players are overlapping. I was effectively being able to continue what I wanted to do with DayZ on someone else's uh, code base, on someone else's time and 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 not have to worry about whether or not BI liked a change or whether or not I had to sure. wait to push out an update. I could just do it whenever I wanted to. It was immediate feedback on, on the ideas I had because it was so easy to write something in Lua and push it out there and see how it worked. And to this day, I'm still addicted to it. I ended up writing, I ended up focusing uh, right around the time that COVID happened. I was starting to focus on Red M, the Red Dead Redemption 2 harness that those CFX guys put out. So I started mm -hmm. working on that and building up a, a Red Dead Redemption 2 roleplay server, the idea of being, you know, uh, a, a cowboy or a U.S. Marshal or a bandit yeah. out in the Wild West, right? It's, it's, it was huge. It was awesome, the stuff we could do with, and it was an evolution already of the code base that Rockstar had worked on with GTA V. They had taken it so much further with Red Dead. I was able to uh, dedicate time on that with a good friend of mine, Arik from Texas. We built up this, this pretty cool world that started hitting on some of the stuff that I left on the table with Daisy. The idea of use-based skill systems and skill caps and, and a player-driven economy. Yeah. And and that thing started snowballing and ended up gathering attention of my good friend Ravage, who I hadn't uh, played with since I had left RP First years back. And we ended up merging our communities together, taking my PRC server, which is a domain name, six-letter domain name I had had from the 90s in Ultima Online, merged that into his Twitch RP. And, and, and we've got now a really solid base of the Twitch RP GTA uh, launch that just relaunched now. So we got that going and we're working on an update for the Red Dead server. Going to relaunch both of those with stronger player economies and player skills. And overall, it's just, it's, it's everything I ever dreamed uh, as a game developer, being able to just, you know, carte blanche, prototype stuff, push it out there, make quick changes, get immediate feedback because yeah. so many people are streaming it. It's, uh, I mean, if I could get paid full time for doing that, I'd probably just do that. <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds like you're super passionate about it. That's freaking awesome. Um, thank you so much for joining on. If anybody wanted to like getting even involved with that or wanted to hear more, uh, you know, about some of the stuff you're working on, what's the best place to go even to get started or even to just chat with you or to see where you're posted online? Well, for me, uh, easiest would probably be my Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash hicks underscore 206. Uh, there's probably still a good amount of impersonators out there, so just look for the blue check mark one. That's me. Um, on the GTA and Red Dead Redemption side, twitchrp.com should have everything you need to know. 
We're trying to centralize all our information on the development of the Red Dead relaunch and the GTA relaunch, all there. So yeah, between my Twitter and twitchrp.com, you should get all the information you need. Awesome, man. I, I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours easy with the amount I've of questions known. that I have, but uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining in and, and sharing some of your experience and everything today, man. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I wanted to just end this with a little bit of context on why we do what we do. We're former content creators ourselves, and we just really want to help as many content creators as we can. That's why we started Pipeline.gg. It's a platform where you can find other like-minded creators and learn from the pros who have already been there. Get step-by-step -step guidance so you can avoid all the mistakes that we made in the beginning. If you love the episode, there's going to be even more inside of Pipeline. So check it out. Head over to Pipeline.gg.